if you uh, give a man a fire, he's warm for a day. But if you set fire to him, he'll be warm for the rest of his life. <laughs> Welcome to Solution Focus Possibilities Podcast. We want to help you have more productive conversations in whatever area of work or life you find yourselves in. What better way to do that than to invite you into our own conversations as we discuss our solution-focused practice, our different experiences and findings. We hope you find this helpful, useful and inspiring. Welcome to our podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of our podcast and this, I was going to say this week, but this month uh, we have Mark, Dr. Mark McCurgo with us. Hi Mark. Hi everyone. Welcome. Before we start Mark, is, is it um, is it Dr. Mark or Mark? How would you prefer us to... You can call me, you can call me Mark, right? I only mm. use the doctor, I'm a PhD, I'm a PhD in physics, but fortunately in the academic world, once you've got one, they don't really mind very much what topic it's in. So I only use Dr. Mark if somebody starts trying to play the I'm more senior academic than you game. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good tactic. So we've got a bit of a challenge for you, Mark, to start with. Uh-huh. We, we wondered whether if you were kind of stuck in a lift with someone and you had 25, 30 seconds to kind of explain in that short period of time, kind of who you were, what your mission is in work. Uh, how would you go about doing that if you can? I know that's not an easy one. <laughs> it's not an easy one. And it's one I, I think about. So I like to make hard things easier and simpler. Mm -hmm. I like to help people be in control of their own lives and not relying on professionals where they don't need to. I like to avoid people being ripped off by unscrupulous professionals, of whom there are far too many. Uh, and I like people to be living the life they want to lead and being tolerant of others living their own lives too. Uh, and that's become quite controversial in recent years, which is a shame, but there we go. Uh, and I uh, live in Scotland, and here we have a very good attitude of people more or less getting on with their lives in all sorts of pluralistic and uh, multi-stranded ways, which is great. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a solid lift pitch. Very good. <laughs> very, I'm, very I'm, I'm sold, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm very impressed. So why, why do you think that's become more controversial? Well, we're unfortunately seeing, I think, a rise in sort of identity politics again, and uh, uh, we're seeing, you know, the, the phenomenon of government ministers sitting in front of union jacks at all opportunities does not, to me, strike uh, a note of tolerance, diversity, inclusivity, and a broad invitingness to our mm. country. And I wonder, worry that the UK has become in some ways a less open and inclusive place in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a tragedy. Mm. Um, I hope I'm not stepping on anyone's toes here by saying this, but I, uh, I'm, I thought that Brexit was an absolute disaster. Uh, and but we've kind of closed our doors, it seems to me, to people. I saw something in the paper today that said that the people who were affected by Brexit, like me, who worked all over Europe, uh, hate it, but the people who weren't affected by it haven't noticed a thing. Mm. 
<laughs> and so there are people going after countries going around the world having voted going around having voted for brexit and they're like well i can't feel any difference <laughs> no you can't because you never had anything to do with europe in the first place apart mm. possibly from going to spain for holiday <laughs> so so i i'm and this is why my new project that maybe we can get to talk about later is called village in the city which is the idea that we could all be part of building inclusive multi-stranded communities right close to where we are if we live in cities and then this is on a level of a few streets or a couple of blocks maybe mm. not on the level of a whole council area or something like that and it's the sort wow. of thing that anyone can do with a with solution focus and with a few ideas uh, it's an excellent way of applying solution focus thinking to something that's right on our doorsteps mm -hmm. and even if we can't have an, an inclusive welcoming country maybe we can have an inclusive welcoming neighborhood and that would be a major step forward in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. You, you just mentioned um, SF there. We always like to hear about how people came to start uh, using SF. And people have got obviously very different stories. Yours seems very interesting when we think about kind of past careers. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a bit about where you were? We, in your book, you talk about you were uh, a nuclear physicist. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So how on the earth did that happen? You come from there to where you are now? Yeah, well, so I, I was very keen on nuclear energy. I still am. Um, I, I thought nuclear energy could save a lot of the planet's problems. And I still do think that. Uh, I got a job. I did a PhD in nuclear physics. I got a job on a nuclear power plant like you would. And I was having a whale of a time. And there's a ver version of my life where I'm still there <laughs> 30 or 40 years later. But it was a very old power station and it closed. Uh, because it was, you know, uneconomic to run. And uh, so that meant that uh, I got to organise some of the closing stuff, which was new and innovative. And I got to learn about management because I got promoted very quickly because all my colleagues left. So they said, you should do a management certificate at the local tech. And I thought, no, I'm not that sort of person. I did an MBA degree at the Open University uh, just when they were starting to do them in the early 90s. And I got very interested in organizational work and it was much more fascinating than physics. Uh, and I kind of got seconded into various jobs in business planning and strategic planning and human resource development and facilitating and an early version of coaching. And I thought, this is great, I can love this. So in 1992, I left the electricity generating organization and set up on my own as an independent management consultant, helping with being basically a facilitator a management trainer and I was going to have a career in that and then I met this guy called James Wilk uh, in London and Wilk is an interesting footnote in the world of SF he was a therapist in residence at Milwaukee the brief family therapy center in Milwaukee with Steve DeShazer and Insa Kimberg from 1984 to 1985 and uh, he was pursuing his own agenda at that point about minimal intervention how could you do organizational change, but change very few things in such a way that everything else changes. That's very mm. interesting. And he'd written a book with Bill O'Hanlon, who's another solution-focused pioneer in the therapy world. And they'd written this very weighty book called Shifting Contexts, which is not an easy read, but it is about the philosophy of brief therapy approaches. And it contains a lot of stuff. And I read it on holiday in 1993. 
on the balcony of a, 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 a cottage in the Picos de Europa in Spain, and I still have the copy. It's full of pencil underlinings, <laughs> yes, 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 scribbled in the margin, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And I came back from that holiday thinking, wow, I really need to follow up on this. And somebody said, oh, Bill O'Hanlon is coming to brief in London to oh. give a seminar. So I went. And uh, there's the 90, autumn 93. There's the start yeah. of my Solution Focus connections. Well, and what was it about that approach then that hooked you? I know in your book you talk about this, I think was it five headings to sum up why you think it's interesting? Like, that, those five is... headings, why, why I think it's interesting now, right. you know, why I've always thought. So it's, it's about it's effective, it's efficient, more to the point. It works quickly which is an underrated quality in my view. It's energizing, it's naturally energizing for the people who, who do it and they are involved in doing it. Uh, it's uh, elegant and it's ethical. And uh, the way we treat the client's words as, as you know, an effective starting point, whatever they may happen to be. It's mm. very respectful and ethical. So that's why I like it now. Why I liked it then was that they made this really good distinction, which we still have in SF. Between you, what you want is a customer for change in front of you, not just any old client. That's the word he uses. Not just any old client. So, uh, and there's a lot about how you position the work to be about something the person wants to do. And that is immediately a transformational move, in my view. Just that would be a start. Because I had worked with consultants, particularly management consultants, who didn't work that way at all. They knew what you needed to do. And their job was to get you to do it. Irrespective, and particularly if you if you thought that wasn't the right thing to do, you were being resistant, you were clearly in the wrong. And their job was to either convince you, trick you, or whatever, to do the thing they wanted you to do. And I hated that. I had experienced that on the other end in the electricity industry with consultants who were trying to manipulate us to do things that they knew about, but we didn't. Mm. And I just hated it. It was foul. And I said, I'm not going to work like that. I want to work in a more open and, uh, way that respects people mm. uh, and encourages progress. There was this other thing with the consultants, the, those consultants, that, that anything you did was, was either insufficient or incorrect or probably both. Right? But they wouldn't tell you what was sufficient and correct because you were supposed to work it out for yourself. So it just ended up with this continuous months and months and months of strife uh, while they ran rings around you and charged a fortune, charged a fortune for the, for the privilege. Mm. And we seriously wondered whether they had compromise on the, on the leading directors of the company. That the, why were these people being employed when they were so clearly useless and expensive? And yeah. so I decided I didn't want to be useless and I didn't want, I, I, I'm, I'm expensive, but you only need me for a very short time because mm. solution focus is effective and efficient. So, and while we're doing solution focus work in organizations, I can not only help you tackle your issues, but I can teach you how to do it as well. Mm. That's always been our kind of pitch, if you like. Um, yeah. That we, you know, we'll help you to learn to do it for yourself. So next time you'll have a good chance of, being able to do something without us, which is you know, good, good value for employing people like me for a few days to, to help sort it out. Mm. So there's that, that old, sorry, the old on, adage about, I, I like Terry Pratchett's version of this adage. If you uh, give a man a fire, he's warm for a day. But if you set fire to him, 
He'll be warm for the rest of his life. <laughs> That's going in the intro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the thing about teaching people to do it for themselves. It's a nice mm. thing. I think in the SF world, because what we do is relatively simple, uh, people can get a handle on it quite quickly. And particularly if they're people like coaches and consultants, they could be able to learn it. Fair, you know, if they can set aside their other stuff, they ought to be able to learn it fairly, fairly quickly. At least get a start on it, yeah, fairly quickly. And I really like that about our field. I think that's very, it's ethical and it's useful. Yeah. Was it was it like an instant conversion, or did it take you a bit of time to? No, absolutely instant. Yeah, I was sat on reading this book, and that book's not even about SF. It's about more of brief therapy in the the broader sense. But the ethics of brief therapy really chimed. With me, and that's why there's this chapter at the end of my new book about the aesthetics of solution focus. What do we think is beautiful? What are the things that have us on our feet and cheering? Uh, you know, which not all practitioners would cheer. And one of the first one of those is brevity. Uh, you know, when something happens very quickly, we're going yes, result. And there are people out there who are going no, not a result. No, <laughs> flight into health. No, they haven't seen the full awfulness of their situation yet. No. <laughs> You know, and I, uh, I just love being on my side of that divide. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So that's a bit about how you kind of got into it. Can you, can you kind of tell us what your day to day is like now, and what, what, ah. what do you do typically? <laughs> or is that uh, a bit difficult to kind well, of say right now? Well, no. I mean, I used to be. My day to day was uh, my natural habitat was a conference centre. Uh, for a long time and I would go around the world with Jenny my wife and we'd go to conferences and trainings and seminars uh, sometimes we'd be giving the seminar other times we'd be joining in with the seminar from somebody else uh, sometimes we'd be working with clients um, and of course in the last year or so none of that's been going on uh, face to face um, mm. so the other natural habitat I had was an airport lounge <laughs> pretty much um so none of that um but i've changed the first line of my biog to author because i've written three books in the last year and a half mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it seems to me that when particularly as there's less traveling now writing uh is one of the ways we can get our ideas out and so i've written I've oh, been involved with three books. I'm an editor of the uh, Journal of Solution Focus Practice. That's the academic journal of our field. By the way, folks, free downloads, open access. It's there to be seen. Go and check it out. Uh, and uh, it's a skill that, that I have. And also Jenny, my wife, is a brilliant editor and a brilliant sort of wordsmith. And so together we find we can work very well. Uh, on producing written materials and, and it's a good time to be doing that now. Absolutely. My question, Mark, you and Jenny, you've been around the world and uh, you have massively both contributed to our fields and looked after the next generation, um, say encouraged us uh, and so to speak, and you're on the journal editorial board, you're, you're everywhere. How come, I mean, since 1993, how come you stayed hooked onto SF so that, you know, new, new things emerging, new, very interesting things developing, but you, you're somehow, both of you, staying true and loyal to our thing? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's a number of reasons for that. The first one is that SF people are nice to hang out with. 
That's thing one. Uh, you know, SF crowds are a good place to be. And I've worked in other fields where the crowds are not so good. Um, and I, once upon a time, a long time ago, toyed with the idea of being a professional musician. And I turned out in the end, I, although I quite enjoy hanging out with musicians for a few hours, uh, they're quite a hard work bunch uh, in some ways. And I never quite felt strongly about it enough to do that. But it's the nice people. It's an interesting field. It's a bit radical. It turns what's conventional wisdom on its head. And that's really interesting. Um, and so I love that. And I love trying to sort of show that to people. And it's still hardly anyone's heard of it. After 30 years, hardly anyone's heard of it. I was in a, I was in a room, uh, a conversation on Zoom a few weeks ago. And I said, oh, it's like in the brief therapy tradition. And they said, what, grief therapy? And I said, no, <laughs> brief therapy. <laughs> therapy mm. and and so so even despite 30 years of best endeavors uh it, it's still fascinating and also it's it's it is changing it is changing and uh, steve DeShazer, particularly uh, founder of solution focused practice one of the founders had a very strong views on doing it and not talking about it and showing it and not saying it uh, and that is very very principled but also it gets in the way of trying to talk to people who don't yet understand it about it so one of my things over the years has been how can we follow that example of doing it where we can with trying to find ways to explain it and talk about it to other people who don't get it yet or don't understand it yet or don't even know of it yet in ways that help them to um Help them to think, oh, that's interesting. I'd, I'd like to know more about that. And to be honest, a lot of Steve DeShazer was a magnificent man. He was an absolute hero. And I'm, I regard myself as very privileged to have known him um, and worked with him even a little bit. But, but he was impenetrable. Um, uh, that, not, not in a nasty way at all, but he, was, he knew so much about the sort of backgrounds of, you know, post structuralism and. Wittgenstein and Derrida and so on and uh, and he wrote this book uh, Words Originally Magic which I, I think was supposed to be his crowning achievement but it isn't because it's completely impenetrable unless you already know all that stuff uh, and that's the problem if you if you know all that stuff you can you can sort of engage with it but there's about three people in the world who, who <laughs> know that and and a hard-pressed commissioner in an NHS unit or a sort of you know social work manager is not they're not going to be impressed if you come around waving Derrida at them uh you know uh, they want they've got serious issues to tackle and um even though you're trying to turn their thinking around that's not I think the best way to do it which is what's led me and kept me going and first of all the solutions focus book that I wrote with Paul Z Jackson which was the first business book about solution focus has this framework for coaching of solutions tools and simple principles which I still stand by but even that turns out to be a bit hard to engage with and so then there's the, my latest book which just came out a few weeks ago the next generation of solution focused practice where uh, I developed yes that's it where I developed the um, ideas of description building as being central and this is not new Chris Iveson and, and others including your good selves have been at the at the front of this 
but I was trying to kind of present, put it, put it all together and present it in, in one kind of package that, that people could get, could get to grips with in a, as clear a way as I possibly could. Um, and I think it's that sort of, there's more to be done with this sense that has kept me going for 30 years. You know, the story's not over. It's still not over, not mm. at all. The story's actually, in some ways, more open and interesting than it has been for a while right now. Now we've got all the work of people like you and, and Chris and uh, others, description building, uh, um, which gives us a potential new focus for our work and a potential new focus for our research. Uh, and so while a lot of the work looks quite similar than it used to, I think we can look at it in a slightly new way. And that might also help with this mission of getting other people to see the value of it and see how interesting it is. Wow. Mm -hmm. There's so many things to ask, Mark. It's fascinating. Um, I, I mean, one, one of the first things that you said to us was that you love making you know, complex ideas simple. And that really resonated with me. Um, and I feel, you know, I, I'm loving reading the new book and I feel, I feel like you've done the hard work for me. You know, you've done the hard work of going and reading loads of things and then condensing it down for me, um, which is brilliant. Um, I, I wondered, you know, when we're training uh, professionals, practitioners, um, often social workers form a large part of our, our training groups. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions that we sometimes get is, um, won't the client realize what I'm doing? And, and there's a fear that the process is so simple that they'll get figured out, you know, and, and the danger of, um, you know, you know what, if, what if they realize what I'm doing here with the questions? Um, my response to that tends to be that I, I quite enjoy that um, angle to it. I, I think it's really ethically sound um, if the client understands the, you know, the process and knows what I'm doing. Um, but I wondered if you get something similar in, in organizations of like, isn't this too simple when they realize what we're doing? Um, and then you also mentioned the, the sort of the death of resistance. Um, I loved reading about, um, you know, resistance being buried in Steve DeShazer's garden and having a, a you know, tombstone with RIP on it. Um, and again, that's, you know, that's still a really controversial idea, at least that we find that this idea of there's no such thing as a resistant client. Uh, and I wondered how that shows in organizational work as well. Um, this idea of, you know, there's no such thing as resistance. Wow. Well, there's two, two meaty questions there. So first of all, in, in the, I've never had anyone worry about they'll work it out. I've never mm. had that question, interestingly enough. Uh, and my own experience is that when I'm being the, the client, if we're doing a demo mm. or something like that, I sometimes get to be the client. Uh, and I don't know what they, I don't notice what's going on because as a client, I get sucked into the thing. I'm thinking about my issue, my, my, you know, the thing I want to be better. And, and I just get sucked into it. And I, and I'm, you know, so for me, it's like, uh, going down a toboggan run or something, you know, you're moving all the time and there's a lot of attention on the moving and you're not at that point worried about exactly who made the toboggan. Um, you know, there's too much else to be thinking about and it's all rather fun and exciting and interesting and I want to kind of hear what I'm going to say. And so, and I think when it's going well, you, you know, client just gets sucked into it and you kind of, that becomes, it's like watching a movie or something, a good movie, you kind of forget about everything else and you just get sucked in. And I think SF work, works like that when it's going 
you know, and it's going well. Uh, so I, I've, I, I love the idea that it, it's, it's, it's part of the elegant piece. And when I talked about my five E's, there aren't many moves in solution focused work, but they, they can be recombined in many, 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 many ways. And uh, the point is not to have a clever move. The point is to get a move the client will respond to and which takes them a little further or stretches them a little bit more uh, in some interesting way, some place they haven't been before, uh, you know, in their minds or whatever. And if indeed, if I ask a solution folks question, the client starts rattling off the answers. I think, oh, no, that's not it's not very interesting. Whereas if I ask a question and the responses are oh, mm -mm, staring at the ceiling, looking helpless, that's good. Now we're going somewhere that's interesting, you know. <laughs> so that's that. And the other one was about the, the death of resistance. I was researching the development of solution-focused work th in, through Steve Deshaies' life and indeed before. And I start the book talking about Gregory Bateson in the 1920s. And there are things that Gregory Bateson did in the 1920s that we still do. Uh, like, for example, favoring work that's based on actual documentation rather than imaginary summaries. Um, and when Steve Deshaies, Steve Deshaies started as a kind of a brief therapist always, but one who was quite interested in making interventions, making creative interventions that got clients doing different things. And I quote an example in the book about him setting up a couple. Uh, there's a mother and a daughter who are squabbling continuously. And, and rather than have the squabble, he says that when you're going to have a squabble, you should go to the garage with water pistols and have a Western style shootout with the, with the, with the father being the referee and uh, uh, keeping them both supplied with water. Uh, and it's a kind of pattern interrupting thing that, that, that gets them to stop. And indeed it works and they're very happy with it. Gets them to stop having these arguments and do something different. And uh, then, but that's kind of telling the client what to do. And then there's this interesting moment with the death of resistance paper, which takes about five years to write and get accepted, where they move from what they call the, com the competition model uh, to the cooperation model. And uh, this is the, co the, co the competition model is that I'm trying to think harder than the client to get them to do something that will change, change their lives. Whereas the, comp the cooperation model is, no, we are in this together and my job is to work with the client uh, so that they, they themselves change their lives. Hmm. And, 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 that, and they, I think Steve uh, Deshaies and Intu Kimbo spent the rest of their lives kind of working with the consequences of that and getting halfway at least to uh, to the real consequence of that, which is that the client's words are always right, if not final. They're not final, but they're always okay. Uh, and uh, our role is to, uh, to help the client expand their own worlds, words, lives in, in the ways that they want to. And we start, you know, we don't sort of spend a lot of time at the mucky around at the beginning wondering what you really want. We say, what do you want to be better and start working on it with the idea that if it turns out actually to be something else, that will appear you know, at some stage. So we're not trying to second guess clients, hmm. at, least, at least hardly ever. And, and, and there are times, if client is openly contradictory, saying, I want this, but I don't want this, we're allowed to be puzzled. <laughs> you say that again? Talk me through that. How does that work? Mm. 
And, but you're always trying to get your client to, think, to kind of do the work. Don't work harder than your client is one of my favorite SF sayings. Uh, certainly not on average, don't work harder than your client. We sometimes have to work a bit hard. But if on average you're working harder than your client, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> and so this, the, the, co the cooperation model, you know, Stephen Insu got half, at least halfway there. Um, but I think that this next generation work, the description building work, it continues that journey. If we're really in cooperation with client, uh, that's, that's the main thing that we need to do, help them build descriptions of what better is, to access things that they can do, experiences they can have, uh, things they can notice, uh, tiny signs that, that, that tell them something important. Um, and they do, they're going to do all that. We can't do that for them. Um, and mm. so that's, in a way, kind of continues this journey that's been going ever since the death of resistance paper. Uh, and we're still grappling with the real consequences of that, I think. Mm. I think Greg has got a question, but I'm going to quickly jump in there before he does. Um, and this may be because I'm out of the world of SF uh, as much as these guys. I don't think we've ever discussed this before but i wonder how we got to the place where that approach is controversial and radical like surely that's seems to be the most obvious thing to work in cooperation like how has that not been the case for so long well you guys are more plugged into the worlds of things like social work than i am but one of the things is that because practitioners often have i think a duty of responsibility and that's not always easy to square you know, mm. if, you, if, you, if you're in a situation where your client may go out and knife someone, mm -hmm. uh, then the stakes are, are quite high. And if they do go out and knife someone, then someone's going to come knocking on your door and saying, uh, why didn't you address this? Mm. And so I think that, that there's a tension there. Mm. There's a tension between a sort, of, a sort of coaching approach, which I think is, solution focus always looked a bit like coaching anyway. And it's one of the reasons it's taken off big in the coaching world is it already looks quite a lot like coaching you know so it's very widely applied now in the coaching world but there is a an uneasy partnership with this sense that i'm responsible for uh, the things that my apparently unhinged client might do or can hinged according to someone else mm. um, and i think that's not always easy uh, to resolve. And one of the nice things about working in the management and organizational world is that generally, while people may be somewhat unhinged, that that's just part of the part of the process. Uh, and, and they're entitled to keep making their own decisions. You know, you've not been hired by the hospital to work with them. They've hired you themselves or, or some, mm. some, some part of their organization has hired you. And they can also fire you. Whereas in the therapy world, it's harder for clients to fire their fire their therapists i think it should be easier but, <laughs> um, because you know once the other thing about solution focused work is in it's efficient and if it's not starting to do something after three or four sessions i think there are good reasons to try something else or try at least try a new a new person if not a new approach um uh, so so rather than sit around with it for months and months and it's not going anywhere you know, let's just embrace that and, and move it on, get something different into the mix. Uh, so I think, and it's partly also a sense of professional's worth, self-worth. If that's all you're doing, uh, 
quotes all you're doing that's amazing but you know you've been educated probably in all these other things you ought to use them now i think that's a in the long run i hope that all these other things will fade away and wither on the vine but you know with the number of counseling departments there are particularly in north america out there now i don't see that happening anytime soon regrettably which is just muddying the waters for everybody so uh, perhaps one day but, but it's, it, it is still controversial. But I think on the other hand, that also means it's, inter- it's exciting and interesting as well. And it's worth doing, worth persisting with. kind of change track a bit mark because this yeah i mean i've been following a bit on social media when you've been talking about the the village in the city stuff and it it resonates with me because my my son there's a local scheme where you kind of sign up and they send you all this like litter picking stuff and you can go around with your high vis and and so we've been doing that past couple weekends (laughs) and the amount of people that are coming out of their houses like just as we're walking by like people i've been on this street for seven years haven't seen half of these people and, and they're coming out and then coming along to, you know, say thank you and say hello. And, you know, you have a chat with people and it kind of gets me thinking about this whole idea of as a, as a neighborhood, like if there were things people needed help with, like, I don't know, bricklaying and fixing up a wall, there's going to be somebody on the street that, that has that skill that I could probably, you know, try and find or ask about it. And I, I don't know, I wanted, wanted to hear your thoughts more and kind of tell us a bit more about the, the village and the city stuff. Yeah, so I think the pandemic has brought this out a lot. And uh, my experience here was that at the beginning of the lockdown last year, I live in the West End of Edinburgh, and uh, immediately people started communicating locally in a different way. Mm. So we had a street email list was set up based on the people that people knew about. But then it turned out there were other people who'd lived on the street for years and nobody knew about, which is interesting because it's kind of rather grand buildings, but people, which some of which are offices, but people live in the basements, they live in the attics, they, a few mm. of the buildings are still houses. So it's not obvious whether a place is occupied or not. Uh, and then we had a WhatsApp group and, uh, and I thought, well, this is good, you know, WhatsApp group sharing which shops were open, how you could get fresh vegetables delivered, people offering help and, and, and those things oh, this is great i know my neighbors so much better in in a few weeks <laughs> than, than i have for the four years we lived here or three years at that time we lived here so and i thought well this is good and the future is going to be more local than we thought it was i said my natural habitat was the conference center and the airport lounge mm. well not anymore i think so we're going to be all be spending more time in our patch so it's up to us to make our patch a bit better and one of the ways we can do it is simple communication so I started to look around here in, West, in the West End of Edinburgh and sort of wondered what means of communication is there. And there I found a Facebook group with 19 people in it, West mm. End residents. I joined it, 20th person, and went and, had a, went and had a chat with the guy who'd set it up. And he was very keen to expand. So we, we got some leaflets printed. Uh, if you live in the West End, you want to join our Facebook group, please do. And we put leaflets through every door uh, in the West End and uh, we stuck them on lampposts and we stuck them on garbage dumpsters. And um, just last week, we celebrated our thousandth member 
in the oh. Facebook group. Uh, and uh, the response has been, at long last, somebody has given us a chance to communicate with our neighbours in mm. this wonderful area of the city. And, and it's, it's all sorts of things going on. It's people who want a recommendation for a joiner. It's people who've got you know, an old record deck to give away. It's people who are, uh, it's local businesses who are reopening. It's people taking pictures of the local cat. Uh, which is a popular and controversial topic. Not everyone appreciates it. It's all, it's hu all of human life in a way is there, uh, but we've been very strict about it. you've got to live in the West End or, or, or have a business here to, to qualify. Otherwise you get all sorts, a good group attracts people from all over the place. And so, I, so that's one piece of it. So we've now got at least a mechanism of talking together about local issues in an inclusive way that's open to anyone who lives here. But then I thought, well, I've done all this solution-focused work. I've done also work on host leadership, leading as a host and exploring that metaphor. And I wonder what I can contribute to the world of community development. So I went out and uh, I wrote a manifesto for Village in the City, which had six key elements of a, a village in the city. You, anyone who's looked at my work will know that I like six key elements. Six, six is the kind of maximum number you can work with. Um, so there's six solution tools and six simple principles in village in the city. There's six roles of a host in host leadership. You know, six is the magic number for me, apparently. And I, so I just yeah. set up a website and I set up a call and invited people. And we've got people, we've had a dozen calls with experts around the world. We've got villages signing up to be on our map, we've got villages in North and South America, as well as across Europe on our map and we're collecting up together ideas to support each other about how we create our little micro local inclusive positive communities and solution focus is of course a brilliant way to to approach that you because you're looking for what's working and you're looking for what's useful mm. um and, and that turns out to chime very well with the whole asset based <laughs> community development movement uh, which has been arri arriving over about 20 years, not dissimilar to Solution Focus, where they, their, their motto is start with what's strong, not with what's wrong. Mm. And the idea that a local community is not a thing to be fixed by solving problems, it's a thing to be grown. And the, things you, the, the starting point is the things that are strong, the things that already work, the things that help people to connect. And that'll be different everywhere in detail. Uh, and uh, but then you can move towards inviting more participation, having more inclusive events, having more meeting places where people can bump into each other, having ways of getting the word out, and having a, an, an identity in, in a nice way. Something mm. that says, why is my place special? Why is the West End of Edinburgh special? Mm. Now, we're lucky. We've got lots of ways that it's special already. But I think every patch yeah. could have a little something that makes it special. Mm. Uh, and that can be almost anything. Uh, it can be, I used to live in London and the, the little area, the village I was in in London was the Nags Head, which is halfway up Holloway Road between, uh, uh, between uh, uh, I'm forgetting it now, Archway and, and the other end. Anyway, but the point is the Nags Head is a pub that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the nags, but it's still that little area there's a market and there's a there are shops and there's a kind of crossroads and there's buses going 
north, south, east, and west. And it's called the Nags Head. And uh, but there's no Nags Head. But none, that doesn't seem to matter anymore. <laughs> Everyone knows where the Nags Head is mm. in that part of the world. Mm. So so the thing that makes it special doesn't even have to exist anymore. <laughs> mm. And and since you started doing this, I mean, grown that group. Yeah obviously with the other people there from 20 to a thousand and kind of facilitated that, that hosting and that communication. What have you, what have you noticed? Like what's, what's shifted in the neighborhood? Oh, an enormous sense of people feeling part of it. And the response we've had has been overwhelmingly, God, somebody's finally gotten around to, to mm. doing this. And we started looking at other neighborhoods, neighboring neighborhoods, and a lot of them already had such mm. things been going for years mm. um and it's interesting that i think the west end is regarded more as a commercial and um, um shopping and working place than a living place even mm. though there are people living here and there are more and more people living here whereas the other places were kind of already always regarded as somewhat residential and so we've had to kind of step out from behind our offices and seize the residential <laughs> part of the equation uh, yeah, which yeah. has been rather fun. Um, and of course, we've been, we've, we, we want to organize some actual events, actual get togethers, but we've been completely stymied by, by the lockdown. Um, however, as we speak, things are opening up again, and I'm optimistic that we can start to get some actual things going to get people actually meeting each other. But mm. having, a, having a Facebook group with a thousand people in it, I mean, it's now easy to get the word out. Mm. Mm. You know, that's the point. It allows things, the, the word to spread. Whereas if we didn't have that, how on earth would we tell people mm. uh, about things that were happening? So it seems to me it's a real first step to get a little local, local network, whether it's on Facebook or it's on WhatsApp or it's on you know, Google or there's all sorts of actual ways to do it. But some way that people can communicate with each other, mm. which mm. is more than just a sort of newsletter or parish magazine. Uh, you don't want a hub, a hub model where everything has to go through one person. You want a network model where people can communicate directly with each other mm. in all sorts mm. of ways. And that's the difference between an organization and a community. Mm. An organization all goes through the, the central point. A community, mm. people can communicate directly with each other. Uh, and that turns out to be a really important distinction. And I'm just writing, I'm working on my fourth book at the moment, which is about <laughs> going to be about com fourth book of this last year and a half, which is about community building for citizens. Uh, lots of the books out there on community building are for community building professionals. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. But my model is more like a sort of guerrilla action model. A few good, well-minded citizens can seize the initiative locally and start doing things like Facebook groups, which then lead to potential for all sorts of other things uh, and so I'm working on a book about how to do that that just for anyone who wants to make their neighborhood a bit better that's brilliant so Mark on that I mean uh, as you are you're one of say our key people um, conceptualizing what we do so those of us who'd rather just do it don't have to do it um, spreading the word do you when you're going all those avenues and uh, meeting people from professionals to communities, do you feel the, maybe the need <laughs> or, or necessity to say what you're doing? Um, so that, uh, I don't know what I have in mind is say, 
uh, what you mentioned earlier in coaching sometimes people say yeah that's what i do anyway and then you look at the practice and and it's not the case because maybe they're not following the same ethical principles or so H how do you navigate your way around this yeah so when i'm in my community building guys for example I, i'm i'm trying to work in a solution focused way but i'm not being terribly public about it to start with and i'm just doing it i'm just doing the best i can and being solution focused, I'm very interested in what people want. I'm very interested in what's working. I'm very interested in small steps. I'm very interested in building cooperation. Uh, uh, and that's a, you know, th at that level, that's un that's uncontroversial for most people. There are people who want to be the the lord of their neighbourhood, you know, and they but they want to be the hub the hub thing. And I and I I'm, I'm not very keen on that. Um, but if you can join in in a participative way, uh, that's okay. And th there is a terrible dilemma, I think, that you mentioned, where you, as solution-focused people, we love to be appreciative and supportive. And you've come, and of course, you want to be as appreciative and supportive of anybody as a first move. Um, but then what do you do if, if they seem to be doing things that are unethical, uh, improper, or or just not what they claim to be, what are you supposed to do? Do you call them out? That's not being very appreciative and supportive. Do you just turn a blind eye? Well, that's not very helpful to the rest of the world because they just carry on. I think this, this having a way to talk about solution focus is the, the great missing link because then you can start to treat it as a, as a sort of educational opportunity. But if you can't have, don't have a way of talking about it other than watch what I do, which is where Steve Deshazer was, then it's really hard to engage people. Um, and it's always been the challenge of teaching it uh, as well. And I think if we have a more of a framework for how do we think about it, then teaching it becomes easier. Uh, of course, there's still going to be a lot of practice and a lot of you know, exercises and so on, but at least you can frame the exercises up in ways that this is why we're doing this. Um, uh, why we're doing asking all these questions about about what else and what difference would that make to you and who else would notice and what would they notice and what would be the first tiny signs that they'd noticed and all of those questions that you're very familiar with and I hope some of the listeners are as well you know there's a reason for asking those questions we're not just filling in time uh, the reason for and I, in my book I, I I propose that the reason for asking those questions is that we are, is that we are stretching the world of the client. Uh, and the world is all of their opportunities for interaction. So when people start talking about tiny signs and what difference that would make and what else and what else, they're talking about new, new opportunities for interaction, probably which were always there, but they didn't have significance. Um, and it's, I sometimes liken it to, it's like one of those films, old films where there's a secret passage and in order to get to the secret passage, you have to pull on the candlestick and the, and the door swings open. Um, and, 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 and if you don't know that, you will never find the passage. But once you know that the candlestick opens the passage, you can't unsee it. <laughs> You'll always know that. You may not want to go down the passage. That's another question. But you always know that that's a possibility. So when we get people talking about what's the first tiny sign that you might notice, we're effectively asking them to look for, look for where's the candlestick. Um, and, and, and when you sum that up over many, many, many things, 
you get things like oh, I once famously I had a client who who would squeeze her orange juice differently in the morning on the day after the miracle. Uh, she she always had orange juice, but she'd squeeze it differently. Now that's just fantastic because I have no idea how that works, but she did. Uh, and and uh, and that was a different way of interacting that was always open to her. There's nothing in the laws of physics that deny her the possibility of squeezing orange juice in a certain slightly different way. So this was not was not a hidden option, uh, but but it was unseen. Mm. And maybe there's an interesting distinction between hidden and unseen. And I like to think in solution focus, we work a lot with the things that have been unseen until they are seen. But they were always there, probably. And there's a kind of debate about were they or not. But but I'd like to think of it as the, the things we get our clients thinking about are unseen possibilities, which were always there, but they hadn't been noticed. Bit like the candlestick that you pull to open the door. The candlestick was always there, but we didn't know the significance of it. So, Mark, well, I'm sure there's, I can see the other guys have got jumping in to go for another question, but I'm conscious of your time <laughs> more than anything. Um, and I wonder whether we could kind of finish on on your hopes for the future was it, of SF. Are you hopeful about the future of SF long term? Yes, absolutely, because it's effective. And, and I, it beats me why more people are not interested in that. But I think in the long run, it seems to me that when we get people who want effective, efficient, respectful practice, and why would you not want that? Then we, we have a chance of engaging people in this, in this way of thinking. And it's more than just a way of working. It's a whole paradigm. It's a whole brief therapy approach to how we should work with people. Mm. Uh, and I, it seems to me that there, there ought to be an enormous market out there for that. Um, and I and I still I'm just working on a blog at the moment about uh, a an agency up here in Edinburgh, a very good agency. We did a bit of SF training for them some years ago. At that time, they were offering their clients 25 sessions at the start of every engagement, and they're still offering their clients 25 sessions at the start of every engagement. And I just I can't figure that out. If you know have a way that you no might work in five sessions why would you offer mm. them 25 other than you're happy with people being inefficient you're happy that things take much longer than they need to you're happy that you've got a long waiting list and people who are you know going berserk while, while they're on the waiting list i just can't see what's you know what's the problem but then i'm not i'm thinking about it like a brief therapist is mm. Mm. And if they were thinking about it that way, they would do something different, I guess. So I think there's so much potential. And I'm hoping that my new book, The Next Generation of Solution-Focused Practice, Routledge, available now in all good bookshops, uh, is, is a way of taking that conversation on, that we can engage those people. I have another go at engaging with those kind of people who, yeah. who, who, who love to be supportive of people, but they think that that hanging around in their lives for a long time is part of that support. And I think that hanging around in people's lives for a long time when you don't need to is unethical and disrespectful. Um, and so there's an interesting, I've just been working through this myself. Uh, as a professional, I like to get in, do something, teach people how to do something different and then get out again. 
and let them carry on their lives unencumbered by my presence. And as a professional, that's a, that's a splendid place to be. Now, as a neighbor in my village in the city, it's not quite the same because I have an ongoing relationship with my, with my neighborhood. Uh, and so I shouldn't be thinking always like a brief therapist uh, when I'm thinking about my neighborhood because I'm part of it. And I will continue, mm -hmm. I hope I will continue to be part of it for many years because I live here. Uh, and so it's a bit, so this idea of do something and get out isn't quite the same when you're working with your neighborhood. You're looking for things mm. that, that will develop and continue perhaps, and maybe new things, but uh, I'm not looking to get out because it's where I live. So that's been yeah. one little sort of uh, thing, intellectual struggle I've been having about the differences between those things. Uh, yeah. when, when, when do you not think like a brief therapist and still be respectful? Mm -hmm. That um, sounds like a whole new uh, podcast episode, that does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, it's really interesting and, yeah. and thoroughly underexplored question yeah. because, because uh, this is, this is the, the way we engage with other professionals. And it's always been a big uh, thing of mine is that we should be engaging with other professionals more rather than sitting in our own little, little nice friendly place talking to each other. And I love these podcasts and I love what you're doing. We should be out there as well, talking to other people uh, mm. and saying, look, this is interesting, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And if they say yes, that's great. And if they say no, that's not interesting, then there's a conversation to be had. Mm. Uh, and so in a way, that's where I'd like to see things uh, going. I think that solution-focused work has had an amazing impact on the world. Just from this, originally this little group in Milwaukee, uh, who, who stood on the shoulders of others, of course, but, you know, their work spread around the world in all sorts of things. And it's now in schools and in, and in businesses and in hospitals and in, as well as just in therapy and social work and prisons and restorative justice. And uh, these ideas mm. have informed so many practices and yet they're almost completely under the radar. <laughs> mm. So I think there's everything, everything to play for and a lot of benefit for humanity for continuing the game. Yeah. So if people did want to engage with some of your work, then Mark, where would they, where would you like them to go? Where would you direct people to find out more about your books or about your blog or, or all those things? Okay. So my, my stuff about solution focus is at sfwork.com. SF for solution focus, sfwork.com. And you'll find my blog there and all my books and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and loads of resources. Uh, host Leadership, you'll find information about that at hostleadership.com. Uh, two books, a uh, blog, uh, and coming up a conference uh, in uh, an online conference this year. I was going to say it's in Vienna. It's, on, it's <laughs> online in Vienna. Uh, host Leadership Gathering. And we love people who are like that idea. That's a whole other topic we haven't explored today about how you lead by bringing people together. Uh, much more fitting with the network model than the hub model. Uh, yeah. And then um, Village in the City, uh, villageinthecity.net, villageinthecity.net. Uh, lots of resources there. You can sign up for information. You can even put your village on our map. And so you qualify yourself to join our village builders calls and uh, where we work on stuff together and support each other. So I'm, I'm not claiming to be the expert in village building, but I am claiming to want to learn about it mm. and bring my professional skills to the table. And I want to encourage other people to do the same. 
and come Excellent. and join us. Well, we'll make sure that all those links are in the descriptions and stuff that we put out so people can find you quite easily. So, but Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I know the guys have got loads more questions, so I think we'll probably have to have you on again at some point if yeah. that's okay with you we could do a whole podcast series couldn't we just talking with mark, <laughs> yeah, so. mark you're brilliant talker yes absolutely conversationalist yeah thanks. thanks mark thank you very much thank you everyone thank you very much mark <laughs> thank you it's been great to be with you and a real pleasure to talk to you Once again, thanks for listening to another episode of our podcast. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So if you've got any comments or any questions or any topics you'd like us to talk about, then feel free to get in touch. You can do that in lots of different ways by searching for us on social media. Or if you'd like to go to a website, you can find us at www.sfpossibilities.org.